Father, we give you thanks for a time together again this morning. Every week we get to gather as a whole community to simply worship you, to focus in on you. And then we want to continue in this attitude of worship. And we want to worship you through the study of the studying and preaching and proclaiming and teaching of your word. Father, I pray that you keep opinions and agendas to myself, that only your truth would come forth. God, I pray you keep me teachable first and foremost, and that you would keep all of us teachable, humble to receive instruction from you. And thank you that you provide the grace necessary that we might live it out to the glory of Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take this time and do something incredible and reveal your truth and encourage hearts, convict where sin is needing to be confessed and repented from, that we would be a community of faith, a community of followers of Jesus who truly are living lives that are set apart for you because you're worthy and worth it. So God, we submit ourselves to you this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone who agrees says, amen. So chapter one, verse 10 of Titus, the first word that he starts off with this in this paragraph is the word for, for there are many. Well, what he's doing is he's connected to what he just talked about. And we looked at it a couple weeks ago, the, the, the role of elder within a church. And how I have this conviction that over for a long, 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 long time, this, this role has been turned into a quote unquote, an office. And I just can't imagine that in the beginning where the church started, that all of a sudden you have all these small little home churches that are gathering all over the place. And say that I'm leading a home church and I have this role of elder in my church and say there's only 12 to 15, maybe 20 people that are gathering. I doubt that God is saying, hey, I want half of you to be on a board. I want to create, I want to create these boards and you can also sit on a board and then, and then we'll create another board so you guys can look at each other and talk about board stuff. Because I don't think that's what it was really ever intended to be. And we just kind of moved into that place. And then, it, then, the, then it's like the elder or there's a board. It's like those are the ones in charge. And yet I look in the pages of scriptures and my conviction for what it is that I've studied and really sought the Lord on is that the, the role of elder is supposed to be the ultimate servant. Like I'm supposed to be the, I, I lead, yes, but I'm supposed to be the ultimate servant to you all. I'm supposed to care for your needs. And then to gather around me other elders that would be pouring into me that I submit to so that it's not just, well, Brian said and therefore. No, no, no. I have accountability just like everyone should have accountability. And I have people pouring into me, those who are pastoring me and caring for me just like all of us need. But instead of turning into official offices, which when you read commentaries, that's what I'm looking at. It's always these offices that people take. When really I just think it's a responsibility, it's a role. And I might have that in this, in, this, in this community, but it's not like, well, he's the guy, and so we all just come, we come to him, and we submit, lay down before him. Absolutely not. What I prefer is that we just walk together through life. You see me first and foremost as a follower of Jesus, secondly as a brother in Jesus, and then see me as I have this role. And others in our community have this role around me and they shepherd with me and they care. And then when it's time that we have to take on added responsibilities, we look at those who have a love for Jesus and, they, and they're ministers and it'd be the word diakonos in the Greek. Instead of having another board, we just find people who have a passion for that specific ministry for that time and let them loose on that. And then when they're done, you're done. It just seems like it flows like a family rather than a business, rather than an organization. And so... One of the main responsibilities of an elder is to protect and to keep and to guard God's community, God's church. 
And so when we continue on here in verse 10, for there are many, and then he starts to explain it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So I, I don't know, about, I didn't know that there was a political party named the circumcision party. There's probably not a lot of people on it because it just sounds horrible. I'm just joking. But in that day, it was thought of this. If you're going to, there were people who actually believe this because they, maybe they came from Judaism and they went through circumcision. I mean, that's a sign of, of being in covenant with God. When they come to Christ, or when they came to Christ, they would say something like this. Hey, if you're not, a, if you didn't really follow Yahweh and you haven't been circumcised, then you cannot be a follower of Jesus if you don't get circumcised. That might be the worst way to win people to Jesus. Men, come here. I know this wasn't part of your culture, but this is a requirement. You have to. And in fact, even when Abraham got it, do you ever wonder if any of his servants are sitting there going, I'm sorry, what did you just say? Like, you want us to do what? To what? For what? This doesn't make sense to me. But friends, all of a sudden, you, when you have people going, in order to be a follower of Jesus, you have to. But friends, if it's not in the scriptures, and they're just throwing ideas of what it is that you have to do, here's an example. Oh, it would never happen today. Are you sure? That there are denominations that actually say this, unless you, unless you have spoken in tongues, then you have not surrendered your life to Jesus and the Holy Spirit is not in your life. Why? Because there's a, there's a few places in the book of Acts where someone surrenders their life to Christ, the Spirit comes upon them and they speak in different tongues. But isn't it weird that you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14 and Paul is talking about the spirit, spiritual gift of prophecy and the spiritual gift of tongues. And in those chapters, he says something along the lines of this. I would prefer that a person would speak one word of prophecy than a thousand words in tongues. So if it's preferential, then how can salvation be, be based upon that which is a preference? The spiritual gift of tongues it's just as much of a spiritual gift as the gift of spiritual gift of administration. You say, which one's that? Those of you that love Microsoft Excel to death, that's you. You love putting all the tasks together. You love just looking at how can I make the, all these things come together. You have those steps and the processes and the procedures and you just dream at night going, I love this stuff. That's your spiritual gift. Why is that not then a requirement for someone to, to say that I'm a follower of Jesus? If it's just as much of a spiritual gift as speaking in tongues. The second one, when people say, oh, and if you're not baptized, then you can't be saved. But if I'm not saved by any works, if Jesus from the cross says, it is finished, all the requirements necessary for me to be brought back into relationship with God, if it's, if it's finished, then why is it all of a sudden, unless you do this, yes, it's by grace through faith, but you also have to do In Acts chapter 2, when Peter was asked, hey, what, was, what must we do to like, be saved? He says, repent and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. You're like, well, there it is. It's to be baptized. But it also might mean this. It's, it's to publicly profess that I am connected to. It's, in other words, I'm going to believe in Christ. Well, how could you say that? Because belief and baptism during this first century, they were so interconnected. It wasn't, it wasn't believe and then down the road, when you want to get baptized, it was like, believe, get baptized. It's like one moment of what? Surrendering to Jesus. Here's the thing. If it's a requirement, then why is it in chapter 3 when he's asked the same question, he doesn't mention it? 
You would think if that's the major requirement, that is the major thing that's talked about every single time, but it's not. How is a person brought into relationship with Jesus? Well, the Bible says you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. The word confess means to say something in such a way that your life will follow your declaration. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. It is by grace through faith and this faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works. Why? So no one can boast about it. But friends, that means this, it's not by works. I can't stand before you and before God say, well, compared to them, look what I've done. So now I get a better salvation than them, right? No. By grace, through faith, this faith, not of yourselves, that faith is the gift of God. Friends, the faith necessary to surrender, to believe in Jesus is provided by God. Everything's provided by him. Not by works so no one can boast. Then why should we do things? Why should we do works? For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. You know why we do good things? Because we've been saved. Because we've been rescued. Because we've been brought back into relationship with God through Jesus. Not so we can be saved, but because we are saved. It's an act of worship, not appeasement. Friends, it still happens today. You still have people saying you have to do these things. And what does Paul say to Titus? This, this shepherd who goes to Crete that has this horrible reputation of what these people are like. They must be silenced. What? I don't want to get, I don't want to get anybody's face. And guys, I don't wake up going, who do I just get to confront? Oh, I hope today is the day. I just want to confront as many people. I'm going to tick somebody off so I can confront them. But friends, when he says they must be silenced, and here's the reason, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Guys, when you do that statement, things that ought not to be taught, that means that every ideology that's out there, every idea that comes into our world should not always automatically be taught. There is truth and there is untruth. There's truth and there are lies. And the lies that come about that sometimes we've bought into, we say, oh, there's really no big deal about that. Are we sure? And maybe for some, you've never heard of this, this word, but if I mentioned the Enneagram, has anyone ever heard that one? You're like, I, I'm a number four. I'm a number two. And guys, I've always felt, it's always felt weird to me. It's, and people say, well, it's just a personality. It's like another personality test. But it's always felt weird to me. I'm like, why am I gonna take a test on a computer that an algorithm is now gonna define me? It's gonna define who I am and what I'm like. And I remember taking this. It's like, well, take it. It's like, okay, I, I took it. And then at the end, it's like I had three that were almost exactly the same. I had three numbers. And I'm like, does this mean I'm like the ultimate? Like I'm the trinity of a person? Like all of these three different personalities live inside of me. And no joke, the person just said, you just pick the one that seems the best to you. I'm like, well, of course I'm gonna pick the one that's awesome. Isn't it weird though that I would actually allow someone who wrote an algorithm that I've never met, that I can take a test and I can type in my answers to a test that they have no clue who I am, to then define me 
and to live my life based upon what that thing says about me. But friends, if you don't know the background of the Enneagram, friends, it's dark. Guys, you were one, do you realize that one of the founders of our modern-day Enneagram received this information, what he wrote down for us to learn from two spirits? One was called Metatron. I'm like, wow, that sounds like the Transformers. Remember Megatron? This is Metatron, so it's different, but kind of the same, like Transformers more than meets the eye. And Q-Tub, it's an interesting name. But friends, he would personally say, this is where I received it. The person who's known for the modern day Enneagram for people that have bought into it. He's involved in new age practices, uh, psychedelic drugs, and, sh and shamanism, which is interacting with the spirit world. Guys, I listen to that and I go, how did it infiltrate the church? Guys, I go to conferences, like for pastors, and I'm listening, hey, what... What's your Enneagram? What's your number? What's your, it's like, what's your number? That used to be a pickup line. Now it's an identity. And someone say, well, you can take what was, like, what was for the world and turn it. It's like, really? But wait a minute. If the whole teaching of it was given by demons, are we then saying, I'm going to take the teaching of demons so I can apply it to my life? In what other area of my life would I be okay with that? And then the person who took all the stuff that was written and he came up with the nine categories says that in an interview, he came up with it by what's called automatic writing. In other words, spirit channeling. So he's just sitting there and all of a sudden it's just writing. He can't control it. Boom, here it comes. Friends, I've heard of churches preaching the nine Enneagrams to help people get to know who they are and to know how to relate with other people. And they listen and they go, okay, this for me, this was eye-opening. And the last week when I'm looking at this going, never. But it just became another personality trait. And I look at this and I look in the pages of scriptures. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Because there's coaches for this who help Christians understand who they are. Isn't it amazing that we have this book that we say the Holy Spirit will speak to us through. We'll spend a lot of time taking a test and reading all the descriptions of it, but we'll neglect listening to what God wants to say and he's gonna spend the rest of our lives describing and defining who he wants us to be. If we would sit with him Instead of settling for microwave, quote-unquote, theology. And to learn to love the stroll with the creator. Friends, I looked at that and I'm looking at what was being taught and I thought, oh God, if I've ever pushed people to that, oh, I'm so sorry. I've always hated it, but oh, I don't, I don't ever want to push anyone toward that. Because think about it, if now you're defined then there's no need to change. You've settled for what someone or something who doesn't know you, or it's based upon demonic influence. Instead of God saying, this is who you are, this is who I want you to become, 
But if you accept a number, you don't have to change. In other words, you get the secret knowledge. That's the secret sauce. That's all you, man. Nobody knows. It's just you. But friends, wasn't that the first temptation? In Genesis chapter 3, uh, chapter 3, starting verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Yes, I know God said that, but you're not going to die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. There it is. You'll get to see things nobody else does. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You're going to have this secret knowledge. Guys, it's Gnosticism. It's exactly what we looked at when we were looking in the book of Colossians. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that was a delight to the eyes. And here's that last part, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Do you realize that in verse six, when it says the tree was good for food, do you realize in chapter two, it's actually described that way and it's actually good. That the, the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes. That's the second thing and it was good. There was nothing wrong with those things. The place where it became bad was this part. That it was to be desired. That word desire in the Hebrew is the word for lust. Lust after. Whatever it takes to get that thing, I'm going to have it. No matter who I have to take advantage of to get it, I'm going to get it. It's this, it's this desire that's not mine for something that doesn't belong to me. I want it no matter what. That's when it became the temptation. And that's what led into the sin because they could have the secret knowledge even though God had already described who you are and what I want you to do. Friends, we need to be careful. Do I say this? Oh, now we're all afraid. All personality tests are of the devil. No, some can be helpful. But this one, when you look at those, those who wrote it up, that they're seeking spiritual influences, they're into new age practices, automatic writings, friends, it needs to be silenced. It needs to be stopped. Friends, we live also in a culture Guys, we live in a world where people are oppressed. True? Can we be honest about that? Yes. Does the color of skin that you have automatically mean that you are the oppressed or the oppressor? No. Friends, I don't, I'm not called to repent for things that people did 300 years back. I wasn't there. But the church, have we been guilty of things? Sure, and I can confess that before God, but I can't personally take responsibility for it if I wasn't there to take responsibility for it. But here's what I know about the gospel. You wanna see something that unites people or it's supposed to? When I look in the book of Colossians, it says, hey, there's neither slave or free, Jew or Gentile, barbarian, skating or free, male or female. No, no, it's all united. Guys, you realize that even Paul, in the book of Philemon, he's speaking to a person who was the quote-unquote slave owner, whose church met in his house, and he's speaking on behalf of the slave who ran away, Paul led him to Christ. His name is Onesimus. And he's saying back to Philemon, hey, you need to receive him back as a brother. Guys, you wanna see culture change, the gospel is the solution. You know who the oppressor is? Sin. You know who the oppressed are? Those without Christ. That's the reality. And until we preach that and proclaim that as the foundational truth, 
that we need to hold to, to see lives changed, societies impacted, people freed, liberty proclaimed, but liberty and freedom is found in the gospel. And unless we do that, we are not bringing about the freedom that we think that we are. So how it should look is, I preach Jesus while I give him a sandwich. I preach Jesus while I give something to drink. I preach Jesus while we clothe. I preach Jesus while I give. Because we want people to come to Christ. And instead of us looking at other people and deciding who's to blame, humanity's to blame. Sin is what entangles us to the place of pushing us toward death in rebellion against God. And Jesus comes and came to what? Liberate. And isn't it amazing? We have churches all over the place that are just preaching this idea of liberty without bringing Jesus into it. And friends, if we don't bring Jesus into it, then what are we actually proclaiming? Friends, I have no interest in just feeding someone without giving them the gospel. I also have no interest in just preaching the gospel and not giving food. That we want to look at the example of God. That God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his son and what his son came and did. He touched people who were broken, who were hurting, who were sick, who were hungry, provided needs. And he left the church to do the same thing. Friends, that's why we're here. But some things that are taught from behind a quote-unquote pulpit need to be silenced and stop using it as, well, I can twist it into like a Jesus thing. But friends, I feel like a lot of the twisting that we do with other teachings, I'm like, isn't there enough in here to try to figure out? Instead of trying to find the secret message that nobody else has seen, or I can take this, this is easier because I don't have to mention Jesus in this part. Isn't it amazing how easy it is to say, God bless you? How much more difficult it is to bring Jesus into the conversation? He says they need to be silenced. Guys, the first sin wasn't just that they ate a piece of fruit. They didn't do what God said. The first temptation was this. You could know things like God does. And God's holding out on you, so if you do this, you could be like him. We're always looking for the secret knowledge rather than just knowing the truth. And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Why would I want to know the secret knowledge when I can know the God who is the God of knowledge and the God of truth? So we get into verse 12. He says, one of the Cretans... A prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Man, that's always a great thing to know about someone. Hey, what are those people like? Oh, they're all lazy. Oh, great. They're all a bunch of liars. Oh, fantastic. Bunch of gluttons. Okay. And then we try to what? Isn't there a temptation to avoid? Uh, I don't want to be influenced by them. But isn't it beautiful to know and challenging at the same time that God made sure to tell Paul to send Titus to them? Well, even not Titus, there's already a church there. So here, in a group of people that are known for always being liars, 
evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Where is it that this could have happened where they would, you'd see a church form in a place like that? I think I brought it up a couple weeks ago that in Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the early believers, 120 of them over, over in that room, it says the Holy Spirit came upon it and it looked, it looked like tongues of fire sat on top, like not on them, but over them. That's impressive. That's an impressive moment. And I think I also brought this up. Is anybody else encouraged? This is gonna sound weird. Maybe for those that have been involved in like leading some type of ministry. Because it's always about how many. How many you got? How many you got? How many you got? How many are part of it? How many go to your church? How many are preaching to? I was like, what the heck? I don't know why us pastors do that, except we are just egotistical. And we're just as insecure as the rest of the world. And we have things to work out just like everybody else. But we bought into this idea, the more, the more you get, the better. Isn't it amazing that after three years, Jesus walking the planet, walking on water, telling the water and wind to die down, bringing people back from the dead, healing people, providing food for thousands of people from a little boy's lunch. At the end of his three-year ministry, he had one dude that betrayed him to death. All of his disciples took off on him. And at the end, 120. That is not efficient ministry. But it's called discipleship. He had 120 disciples. Not just a ministry of people that showed up to something. 120 people who in that moment were filled by the Holy Spirit. And you watch the church just explode all over the place. Guys, I'm convinced that God will do more, can do more with 120 people who are completely focused and dedicated disciples of Jesus than you take thousands of people who are just nominal, not interested. Just kind of like the, the benefits of coming to know Jesus. Guys, that's why our focus as a church is discipleship. What about the lost? Friends, if disciples really get the heart of God, disciples won't stop going after those who don't know Jesus. It's like it starts to ache in you. You want to help those who are in need because you need to do it. Because God's changing us. So on that day when all of a sudden those early disciples were Filled by the Holy Spirit, it says they begin to speak in different languages and all the languages of the people that were there listening, they're all hearing it going, wait a minute, what's going on? We hear it in our own language. And it says that there were some people there who were from Crete. And if, if you see 5,000 or, 5, or so people come to know Jesus that day and that some went back to Crete and they started this church and they don't know what to do, they're just guessing. And now there's some things that need to kind of be brought in and honed in on. And Paul says, Titus, you gotta go to Crete. You know the land where they're known as being always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons? Go, go, you gotta go. Make sure the church is encouraged. Why? Because they're there for a purpose. They're there to impact a community that the rest of the world think are lazy, they're gluttons, they're always liars, but you gotta go with the gospel because that's why the gospel's here. Aren't you thankful? That God is a God of redemption and looks past our titles of other people and goes after them. And aren't you thankful of a God who's a God of redemption who looked past the titles that others had given to you and to me and he still came and he still called 
Guys, we gotta get our minds focused back on the things that are the most important thing. I wrote this in my notes. God calls his people to difficult places to do difficult things because the gospel is needed and necessary and Jesus is worth it. And if God so loved the world that he gave, and if Jesus so loved that he came, then friends, that's our job. And he's our example. And Paul goes on to continue in verse 13. He says, therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Rebuke you. Like, who am I rebuking? Not Hugh, who? You guys are so gracious. You heard that. And yet you didn't laugh. I love you. Because you just know sometimes this is going to get me into trouble. Who is they? The ones who are teaching false things. Rebuke them sharply. Why? That they may be sound in the faith. Guys, that should be the heartbeat. When you or I need to rebuke someone sharply. If in this role I have to do it, but I think we're all called to hear truth, know truth, and we don't hear it, we gotta confront it. And sometimes we have to confront it and rebuke harshly or sharply. But if the purpose is that they might know how wrong they are and how right I am, that's the wrong motivation. He doesn't say that. What he says is that they may be sound in the faith to bring them back into truth. Verse 14, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And then he makes this statement, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. And here's how I think that this verse can be twisted. It's like, well, if I'm a follower of Jesus, that means that anything on the planet now I can make pure. I can kind of do anything so long as I'm, like I'm, I love the Lord, and therefore what I want to do, even though it's probably not the best or it's got some sin in it, but I can make it pure. Guys, that's not what he's talking about. Charles Spurgeon says this about it. So I'm like, who's that guy? Just an old guy that loves Jesus back in the day. He said, the unclean and unbelieving holy things will always be impure. What's that mean? Guys, for those of us who are part of the church, we come together, we come together to worship to be together in community. We gather throughout the weeks in home churches if you're part of one. We open the scriptures. We listen to what it is that God's saying. We believe that this is pure. But to the impure, the unpure, those who don't know God, this book, this book is not pure to them. Even though this is purity, this is truth, to them it is not pure. To them, this gathering is not pure. That we could come together in the most pure motives. The ultimate desire is to give praise and glory to Jesus who is the ultimate of truth and knowledge and wisdom and perfection. We just want to focus in on him. We're not talking about any of the hot topics of our society or culture. We're just here to worship Jesus. And to those who don't give a rip about Jesus, those who can't stand God, they'll look at our gathering as impure. Does that make sense? He goes on to say, you might as well forbid the sun to shine because when it beams fall upon, because its beams fall upon a dunghill. And this is why I think that he was a youth pastor. Because all youth pastors need to know how to throw and poop into a message. Just like I did back in the day. Here, when its beams fall upon a dunghill, it brings forth unwholesome reeking. Yes, but that same sun, when it falls upon the flowers, makes them shed their aromatic perfume on every hand. It is doing incalculable good. It is not the sun, but the dunghill that must be, must be blamed. 
And when the truth is perverted, you must not blame the truth, but blame the unclean, unbelieving heart that turns it into sin. Does that make sense? So to the pure, we sit and go, oh my gosh, the truth is pure. Like this is for my good. And sometimes, isn't it just convicting? That you're spending time listening to the Holy Spirit speak to you from the word and he just kind of drives in this part. You're like, oh my gosh, that is hard. But you don't, our response should then be, oh, but give me more. Give me more. This is good for me. This is good for me. But for those without Christ, no, no, mm -mm, push, push against. But what it does, and all of a sudden you go, oh, the pure, elevated. Absolutely not. Why? Because the only way that we can be pure is by Jesus so I did not reach a level of purity because I've walked with Jesus long enough, friends. The only way that we can be pure before God is Jesus. So this brings us to a place of humility before God, not arrogance before people. Humility before people. Not looking at those who are quote unquote impure. They don't know the truth or the purity of the truth. With this antagonistic Arrogant look upon him. But just like we were rescued from our sin, and we were brought into purity, and then we still struggle with this flesh and sinful desires, true? Like, does it freak you out if I sit there and go, hey, as a quote-unquote pastor, I still struggle against fleshly desires. I still fight against sin. Does it make you want to leave? Guys, I'm a human with a role and responsibility. And that role and responsibility did not elevate me higher than anyone else. I still fight against it. But the only reason that you or I can be pure is because of Jesus. And what that does is it causes us to go, okay, I'm no better, come on. We walk alongside one another, I am not above you. We're brothers and sisters moving together. Verse 16, they said, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. I thought you just had to say some words and you're fine. I mean, haven't you been to a camp or a crusade or something? It's like, hey, just repeat after me. Say these words, repeat after me. Repeat after me. Guys, I remember hearing and reading a story of a man, and God blessed him. He'd go into the prisons and preach the gospel. But he pretty much, this is where I feel like his ministry just went away from what truth actually is and to see the transformative work of the gospel and lives. He actually manipulated them and anyone who didn't, he would force into, say, say the words. Before you go back to yourself, say the words. Just say the words. And he kept pushing and pushing and pushing. I'm sitting there going, how many people have walked away hearing something like that with this false sense of security because it wasn't to the lordship of Jesus that they submitted to. They just said some words because they wanted to go to heaven. Confess that he's Lord. A confession of his lordship means I have no rights, God. I submit to you. I want to follow you. And when I do that to him, go... Oh, then here's salvation. It's like it all comes together. You're like, oh, wow, this is beautiful. Do I think that there are many, many guys, many people have gotten saved at a crusade? Absolutely. But when I'm, my arm is twisted, guys, is it really Jesus that I surrender or I help them surrender to? I move them to surrender to? 
Guys, I fear that in the beginning of the ministry that God has called me to preach this word, I'd go to camps. I feel like I manipulated their emotions a lot. And oh, how I pray that God spoke and used me in spite of me. But I do not ever want to be guilty of that ever again. I want to simply proclaim the truth of God's word. To, guys, this, what an honor and privilege it is to get to preach the Bible and to trust the Holy Spirit will convict and the Father will draw them to the Son. And if they don't, they don't. It's, it's just their thing and God has to deal with that. But my responsibility, teach the truth. Show them love, care for them. This is what the Bible says. And I know it's not popular, but this is the truth. Because I really want you to know Jesus. And instead of getting so consumed with all these superficial things out here that have nothing to do with the transformative work of the gospel, we focus back in on it. Husband and wife, you know why you should forgive each other? Well, because we want a happy marriage. No, no. Like, you don't want us to have a happy marriage? No, no, no. You forgive each other because you've been forgiven a great deal by a great God. That's the motivation behind why you forgive. It is not so I can have the perfect marriage, then I can write the book, and I can have the testimony, and the whole world will see us. No, the whole world should see Jesus. It should be him. And the reason I forgive even before I've been wronged, or the reason that Kelly should forgive even before she's been wronged, is because we've been forgiven a great deal. The gospel is the root of every single decision. And every way that we treat people, it's the gospel, not the benefit of the gospel that should motivate me. The motivation of my obedience to Jesus should simply be Jesus. And he's worth it. And I love him. And I want people to know him and love him. And whatever he brings is wonderful. The benefit is beautiful. But it's not the motivating factor behind why we do what we do. The motivating factor is in Revelation where Jesus is sitting on a throne and a hundred million angels are surrounding him in worship with all the saints who have gone before us in praise and worship of him. And they're not sitting there going, but what do I get out of it? What they get out of it is him on the throne. And to them, he's enough. It's just him. But we have people that just profess to know God, but they deny him by their lifestyle. Jesus himself said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What we do should be the proclamation of who our Lord is. What we do should show, hey, we've been changed by God. You should be able to see that I'm a follower of Jesus. Not just hear that I made a decision at some point. It's like, oh, I better be better. Guys, it's not about you being better. Not doing more. Just be in love with Jesus. The Holy Spirit will transform you. And all of a sudden, yeah, you're gonna get convicted. And he's gonna nudge and he's gonna push. I don't really wanna go. I don't wanna talk to them. I'm gonna keep nudging you until all of a sudden your heart explodes for people. And your heart explodes for holiness. Truth. 
liberty and freedom. Your heart begins to swell for the things of God by hanging out with God. I don't want you to do better things. I want you to be in love with Jesus and watch him change you into better for the purpose of bringing him glory and bringing the gospel to a world that thinks, oh, no, no, they're just lazy gluttons. They're a bunch of liars. And here comes the church going, yeah, but Jesus came for me. So different than prayer, prayer. So different than to show up to something once a week. Welcome to the life of the disciple of Jesus. And there are thoughts and ideas that come out of people's mouths that need to be silenced and they need to be brought to the scriptures and go, where's the truth in this? Why do I need extra super knowledge when I can just hang with Jesus and his word? As the worship team comes back up, finishing verse 16, it says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That doesn't sound like pretty, doesn't sound very redemptive. Guys, I will never tell you, for those of you in business, can you only learn, learn business from people that love Jesus? No. But should you learn business from people who love Jesus? Yes. Because there is this now ethical standard to run your business in a way that is honoring to Jesus. Parents, can you learn tricks on how to raise your kids to be good kids? Sure. From anybody? Absolutely. But I'm not going to go to somebody who doesn't know Jesus or love Jesus and ask him how I can raise my kids to know Jesus. Friends, I think there's a lot of things out there that people have learned that is beneficial for all of us, and I think it's connected to God's common grace. But when it comes to how do, a, how, do we, how do we love Jesus, you go to people who love Jesus and you ask them, teach me how you love Jesus. And the secret knowledge? Guys, there's enough. God is big enough. You will not exhaust him getting to know him, ever. He's like, well, I've been walking with a long time and God's like, I, I forgot. You're like 70. I'm eternal, but you, you've climbed the mountain called God and you figured it all out. Friends, if at any point in your faith, he's like, I've arrived, you are nowhere close to learning more and more about Jesus. Do not settle for what he's already shown you. Always desire for him to show you more based upon the truth that he's given to us in his word. May this become primary. Our time with him in the Holy Spirit, may that be primary. There are things that need to be silenced. And I'll keep my ear to the grindstone. Is that what it is? Ear to the grindstone, right? Ear to the ground? I don't know what it is. I'll keep my ear to the ground. And you keep your ear to the ground. And I'm not going to walk around and be terrified of every thought. But I definitely know I'm not going to teach every thought. Because I don't believe it's appropriate and right when we stand behind this pulpit table. I teach the truth of Jesus. Because that's what we need and that's what the world needs. Can I close this in prayer? And let's sing to Jesus.
And when we sing to him, it's not, what do I get out of it? God, give me something out of it. (laughs) It has nothing to do with that. Guys, if we've forgotten, our worship is an offering given to him. And if he desires for us to experience nothing out of it, praise be to God. Because maybe in that moment, he wants you to actually worship him more than the experience of worshiping him. But if he does, oh, we thank God for that too. Whatever he wants. But we don't come together on a Sunday morning to get stuff. We come together on a Sunday morning to give. It is our opportunity, God, we're gonna give you praise and glory. We worship you because you're worthy. So we're gonna worship him with this last song. Can we stand together and pray? And as I pray, you pray. Father, help us be faithful. Help us be faithful with your truth. God, help us be more consumed with your truth than any of this quote unquote secret knowledge that's out there. Help us to be able to decipher, to decipher what is true and what isn't. Not based upon personal preference or things that we want, but based upon the filter of your scriptures. That we might know you more and want to know you more. God, forgive us for how often our attention is off. God, thank you for the times in your word you bring us back to center. And may we be open to your teaching, your instruction, your conviction, your encouragement. As we confess to you, we don't know everything, God. We, don't hard, we hardly know anything. God, teach and instruct us. And God, thank you for the grace that you give to us that we might live lives that are set apart and holy. So God, as we sing this last song, as a community together today, God, I pray that you receive all the praise and all the glory and all the honor for you alone are worthy. And we pray this in Jesus' name and everyone who agrees says, amen. Love you all more than you know.